So my daughter's turning two next week, if you can believe that. Uh, thanks. And I'm telling you, she's, she's growing up. Uh, this morning, I was in my office looking over my notes, that I'm, what I'm going to be sharing with you today. And uh, she was in there, and Carrie was going to make her breakfast, and so she just turns to me, and she says, Okay, Poppy, see ya. Like, and I'm thinking, like, when did you learn how to talk? Like, in sentences and, and, and all that. I mean, it was unbelievable. Last night, like, I still think of her as, as a baby, like, still drinking out of a bottle, but... Like yesterday, we went out, her and I, and check this out. Um, this, if you see the other one, like you know, she's already drinking Starbucks. Like, what's that all about? You know, I mean, it was a hot chocolate, but we got there, and I'm, I'm talking to her, and she tells me exactly what she wants. She says, "I want a tall signature hot chocolate with whipped cream at 120 degrees, please." She didn't actually say it like that. She just says, "Poppy juice," but I know what it means, and. Um, but I'm telling you, she's just, she's, she's growing up. I was listening to her. I was sitting on the, on the couch reading, and um, she's walking around, and I'm, she's looking at this book, right? And she just, I, I watch her, and she starts counting. And I, I start hearing, like, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, blah, 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 all these other things. And I'm like, this girl just count to 14 all by herself? And then I'm listening to it again, and it's like, now, of course, she doesn't, she skips the number two entirely, but even so, one, three, four, five, it was, it was incredible. Um, you know, and she's negotiating now. This is the part that I think is the funniest, is that she tries to negotiate with me. Like when it's time for her to go to sleep, um, I'll say, she'll, I'll, I'll sometimes, um, if, if it's going to be a little more difficult, I wouldn't just put her in the crib. I'll just, I'll carry her and kind of sh- sh- her to sleep. And uh, so I'll be walking around with her. The house is dark. And... Um, She'll, she'll start negotiating because she doesn't want to go to sleep. And the way that she negotiates is by letting me know that she got an idea. And so she's got her head on my chest, but then she pops up and she puts her finger up and she says, I know. She says, Papi, I know. Comida. So you want to eat instead of sleep. And then I said, no, it's time to go to sleep. And then she gets very sad. And then she pops up her head again. She says, I know. Elmo, fun. That, that maybe then we can have fun instead of going to sleep. And I said, no, and, and I'm telling you, uh, I mean, that I thought was so hilarious. I mean, it took, I laughed so hard, it took her another 20 minutes to fall asleep. We couldn't stop laughing. Um, but, you know, all of these things are simply signs of maturity. And what's amazing to me is that society is like, has all these markers for us. It's like you get to be a certain age and you get to do certain things. And that's how you know that you've reached certain levels of maturity. So you're five years old, you get to go to school. Uh, you're 16 and then you get to, you know, get a driver's license. Um, you know, you're 18 and you get to vote or join the army. Uh, you know, you turn 21 and they tell you that you're allowed to drink. Uh, you turn 25. I always thought this was weird. It's at 25 that you're able to rent a car, or, you know, to, to rent a car, which I don't know. You let people start drinking four years before they can rent a car. Maybe that's part of the problem. Um, at 35, you can run for president because I know a lot of us have that in the back of our mind. Uh, and then, you know, 55, you get to move into a retirement community. And then it's like, oh, I think it's trying to get better. You know, 65, you get to retire by a big Cadillac and then drive 20 miles under the speed limit. Uh, now, that's what I like, honestly, because I think senior citizens have got it right. I'm telling you, senior citizens don't care what anybody thinks. They drive how they want to drive. They wear what they're going to wear. Um, you know, like I'm looking forward to becoming a senior citizen. 
Why? Because I'm looking forward to wearing pants that have an elastic band. Uh, you know, I mean, they don't care about fashion. You tell them that, oh, sir, I'm sorry, that stripes and plaids don't mix. And they'll say, listen, I lived through the Great Depression. I'll wear what I want. You know, and uh, so they've got this, this whole thing. And I think that that's one of the signs of maturity. Fashion goes in one direction. I go in the other. You know, that's like, that's a sign that they've just, uh, that, yeah, I guess you've grown up. You just don't care what anybody else thinks. But I want you to think about what maturity is. If you're holding a piece of fruit in your hand, you're saying, is this thing, has this thing reached maturity? You would, what, what, what we're saying essentially is, is that if it's, if it's mature, it means that it's, it's ripe. It means that it's become fully developed. And I believe in the same way that that's the definition, really, for people as well. When a person is mature, it means that they've become fully developed. And that God is using a myriad of things to become, for us to become fully developed in our relationship with Him, in our lives, and as people. And that maturity essentially isn't something so much that we do. Maturity is a work that God does. But I want you to know that it's not devoid of our involvement. It's almost like God wants to do a work of maturity in our lives, but we get to hold the lever to, set, to, to allow how much maturity we want to come into our lives and how much we don't. In fact, in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul would say this. This is the memory verse for this week. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, I close my letter with these last words. Be joyful, grow to maturity, encourage each other, live in harmony and peace, and then the God of love and peace will be with you. See, we started a series two weeks ago called Fuel, the Factors that Ignite Faith. And what we've been exploring is this book called Second Timothy. And as we have, we've been noting the words that Paul writes to his son in the faith, this person that he's mentored named Timothy, this, this young pastor. And Paul, as, as we've mentioned, is this young guy who's at, at the very end. Paul now is at a place where he knows that he's going to lose his life. He's going to be martyred for his faith in Jesus. And yet what he does is this. He's trying to download and share everything that he can to Timothy about what it takes to really live a godly life. And so as he does, he talks to him about taking the gifts that you have and putting them into, into play and using them for God's glory. He talks, he talks to Timothy about the commitments that, that Timothy would make and that those commitments, if he was faithful to them, would bring him to a place of maturity in his faith. And now he's going to really drill down on three things that God uses to mature us in our relationship with God. But listen, this stuff only happens if we're intentional about it. And so I want to give you these three things that are, I believe, so vital. We're going to start in verse 22 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here's what it says. He says, flee also youthful lusts. But pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him, to do his will. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the first thing that Paul talks to uh, Timothy about, about the, these things that God uses to bring about maturity. And the first is this, that the decisions in my life produce maturity. The decisions in my life produce maturity. Now, what do I mean by that? You see, the longer I live, the thing that I realize 
it, the more that I come to believe that the decisions that we make that, de- that determine the quality and the direction of our lives. You see, I can make a decision to go one way and live my way. And if I do, what, what, what's going to take place is, and if I just reject what it is that God says, then I'm, my life is going to go in one direction. If I decide to heed the voice of God and obey what God wants me to do, my life will turn out in a completely different way. You see, that's why the Proverbs says this in Proverbs 16.25. It says that there's a way that seems right unto man, but the end is the way of death. And see, it's the difference between living based on feelings or based on convictions. You see, a, a child lives based on feelings. That is, um, that I, I want what I want, I want it now, why? Just because I want it. This is how, it's how I'm feeling. Mature people have an ability to live not so much based just on feelings, but they have an ability to live based on the convictions in which they have. You see, living on feelings says, I want the car and I don't care how much it costs. Oh, sure, I can make 72 payments on that. Why don't we just make it an even 80 payments? Why, you know, why not? And, you know, a convi- that's living by feeling. Living by conviction says this. Well, I've got a certain budget that I'm going to work off of to get this car. I like the car. In fact, let's be honest, I really like the car. But if it goes beyond what I believe I'm able to afford because I've got all, because my convictions are telling me that I've got to, I can only give so much to this, well, see, now you've got something else entirely. And what it's important to understand is that Paul begins this idea of talking about decisions and all of this. What he says is, he says, to flee youthful lusts. Now, he's not just talking about lust that comes into our life only when we're young. But in fact, he's using that term youthful as a description of it. It's a description of something, of chasing after something that's only based on feeling and not based on conviction. And that's why there's the contrast that he gives. I don't know if you noticed in the passage, but he says, flee youthful lusts. But then, what does he say? But pursue something else. So instead of pursuing lust, pursue righteousness, love, faith, peace out of those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You see, how do you do that? How do you actually say no to one thing that's based just on feeling and then say yes to another thing just based on conviction? Well, following the same illustration that Paul uses, let me give you the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, where he says, You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your eye than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? Here's what he's talking about essentially. He's talking about being wise enough and making decisions to create hedges in your life. Now, what do I mean by that, about creating hedges? You see, the Old Testament tells us, it's one of God's big ten, the Ten Commandments, says that adultery is a sin. But yet what happens is this, is that Jesus takes it a, a step further than that. He's saying, yes, you know, you, you've heard that it was said that, you know, not, not to commit adultery. But here is what, what the wise person does. The wise person does, this is what Jesus says, this is what Paul says too. He says, be careful about what lust does. Be careful about lust because adultery begins in the heart long before it becomes an action. And so now you have this, this opportunity and you have this thing where you say, well, what does a wise person do? Well, a wise person doesn't just kind of dance on the edge and say, well, I can get as close to the line as I want as long as I don't cross the line. 
No, what a wise person does, they take several steps back from the line so that if they ever even find themselves getting anywhere near close to the line, they know, well, I'm, I'm getting into a dangerous zone that I, that I don't need to be in. So what, what could that mean? I mean, I can tell you that the safeguards that I've placed in my own life, just like, I, you know, I, people come in for counseling and stuff in the office and meet with me or one of the other pastors and staff members, and I don't meet with women with the door closed, ever. Um, and so if someone... If I'm meeting with someone and the door is closed, big red flag. What's going on? Why? Because that's just something that doesn't happen. Well, once again, that's not dancing close to the line. That's taking steps back, real far back, so that someone doesn't ever get even close to the line. I don't ride in cars with women other than my wife. By, by them, you know, like I don't ride in a car with someone other than my wife. I mean, if it's a guy, it's not a big deal. But if, if it's a girl, I, do, I just don't do it. Uh, and say, well, well, why is that? Why? Because I just don't want to get close to the line. And, and, so here, and here is what becomes the problem. The problem is, is that sometimes we know what the sin is, but then what we do is the decisions that we make, and this is why this is all related to the maturity that God wants to bring into our lives, is that sometimes what we'll do is, is that we'll just kind of like live real close to the edge. And say, well, see, I'm not sinning because I'm at the edge, but I haven't fallen over yet. And so we just kind of live right on the line. But the problem with living right on the line is all it takes is one little push before you, before you, you fall over. And that's why sometimes, you know, you, you'll talk to people. People talk to me and they'll say, well, pastor, here's what happened. This happened, this happened. And then, you know, I fell into sin. Sometimes that will happen with couples that aren't married and they're, they're dating. And the next thing you know, they, they end up having sex before they get married. And then, you know, they, they say, well, pastor, I don't know what happened. I just, I, I, I fell into sin. And say, well, let's, let's, well, what, you know, what happened, and let's call it what it is. I mean, you didn't, you, nobody really falls into sin. They, they, they go into sin one step at a time. And so you just, you just start taking steps. You say, well, see, I'm not sinning yet. I'm not sinning yet. I'm not sinning yet. I'm not sinning yet. But then you're just, you're, you're too far, you're, you're too close to the line to be able to stop. And so what happens is disaster happens. When we don't make the wise decision to say, well, maybe what I need to do is create a barrier between me and the line before the sin. And that's the thing that Jesus is saying. He's saying you've got to be careful. You've got to be wise. And that's why Jesus says, you know, maybe if your eye causes you to sin, you should pluck it out. Now, he's not talking about self-mutilation, by the way, because I'm pretty sure you can lust with just one eye, Right? If one of your hands causes you to sin, we'll chop it off. Well, I'm pretty sure if you sin with one hand, you could probably sin with the other. And so what is he saying? What he's saying is this, that if, we're, if, if, if you want to avoid sin, you may need to take a radical approach to sin. Like if the Internet is giving you problems in your house and you say, man, there's just websites I keep going on to that I shouldn't be going on to, then here's what you need to do. You need to call the, the company that is your, your Internet service provider and tell them I'm canceling it. But I have to have the Internet. How would I be able to check my email? Have people write you letters. I mean, have people send you smoke signals. But the question is, do you want to be mature in your faith? Well, yeah. Well, if you do, then you're going to have to make decisions that create maturity as opposed to decisions that impede maturity. Well, Paul goes on and he talks and he moves on, but he stays on the same theme in chapter three. Here's what he says. He says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, 
traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Man, is that a good description or what? And then he says this, For of this sort are those who creep into households and take captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so did these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs was also. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. Now, here's the other factor. If the decisions in, in our lives are part of what produce maturity in us, here's the second component of what produces maturity, and that is the people in my life that produce maturity. Several years ago, I heard this quote, and, and it was this, that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And think about that. You're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And here was my first thought when someone said that to me. Oh, no. I was fearful that was like, oh, I hope that's not true. And it's like, by the way, if that's what you're thinking, it's a good time to maybe trade in your friends for some new ones. Um, because, listen, you can tell, you know, you're not going to go much, much further than the people that you associate and spend the most time with. Because here's what the Bible says. It says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. It's just the way it is. Bad company corrupts good character. And then what Paul does is that he mentions two people by name. This, these people named Janus and Jambres. Now, who are these guys? Janus and Jambres were the two people, were the two, well, let me back up. Uh, those of you know that God calls Moses, right, in the book of Exodus. You've either read the book or seen the movie. Uh, God calls Moses to go and set the children of Israel free. So he goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, eh, I don't really feel like doing that. And he says, all right, well, here's what I'm going to do. He takes his staff and he throws it on the ground and he turns it into a snake but then if you remember this is what it says it says that pharaoh's magicians also did the same thing in fact the first two or three signs that moses performs the magicians are also able to duplicate well what happens now these magicians what are their names janus and jambres according to jewish tradition and so what happens is this now, the amazing thing is, is that after all the plagues, all the stuff, death of the firstborn, angel of death, all that stuff, and on the children of Israel leave, Janus and Jambres decide to get on that train because that just seems like a good idea. So they say, let's just leave with the children of Israel. I mean, you know, let's get out of this place. And so they decide now to leave. They go with the children of Israel to, uh, they say, we're going to leave Egypt. We're going to go to the promised land. That, seems, that sounds good. Now, here's the problem. The problem is, is that they become, it's not just the children of Israel that leave. Because there's lots of people that once they see everything that's gone on, they say, hey, you know what? Maybe the God of Moses and the children of Israel is the real and true, living, true and living God. So why don't we just go with them? So there was this whole multitude that the Bible calls the mixed multitude. And this mixed multitude that weren't Jewish necessarily, but they were just people that were hanging around and said, hey, you know what, this seems like it would be a better thing for us to leave here and go to where this promised land is because anything's got to be better than here. So they decide to go, and here's where the problem begins. This is in your outline in the book of Numbers, chapter 11. It says, now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense cravings. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? 
We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. But now the whole, our whole being is dried up and there is nothing except this manna before our eyes. Now, check this out. This is the thing that's incredible to me. Um, the children of Israel have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God, through miraculous signs, has brought them out. The Red Sea parts, all this stuff, they're on their way. And now they start complaining about the stuff that they missed in Egypt. Now, here's the thing that I find amazing. Right? Someone stopped at Publix for me today. And I got a couple of things here. You know, fish, we know what that is. We know what an onion is, right? Like, I like onions. I mean, I don't say that I miss onions at any point in time, but I'm all right with onions. But then there's also the leeks. I don't know how many of you are like, oh, man, leeks. I love those. I could take a bite out of this right now. This is so delicious. Um, and so, but here, here's the thing that's so incredible to me. Uh, anybody like leeks? Like, say, man, I, these leeks are awesome. Anybody? Look at this. Look at this. Like four people, they're, and they're all embarrassed. Wow, look at that. Um, and here's the thing. Now, to me, because I'm trying to figure out, it says that they had these intense cravings, that they cried. Uh, did, you, did you catch that? It says that they wept. They wept over leeks. I don't know if you've ever cried over a vegetable before. But they were crying over leeks. Uh, just like, oh, God, please, if I could just have... This leek and an onion and maybe a melon. Oh, my life would be complete. Now, I, I don't know. I mean, if they said, you know, we, oh, we miss the chocolate cake. We miss the chicken wings. We really miss the steaks. Oh, remember the beds? Oh, Egyptian cotton. There's nothing like it. Now, see, that makes sense to me. But I don't, it just, I, I can't understand how, how it works that, you just, you, you, you're saying that you're missing the leaks. Now, here's what it is. And here's what happens. You become a Christian. This is how it works in, in our lives. You become a Christian and you decide that, you know, maybe going to clubs and going to places like that isn't the best thing for you. And so you stop going. But then the mixed multitude calls up. And you know what the mixed multitude says? They say, hey, what's up, man? We don't see you at the clubs, man. And what's, what's up with that? Well, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm really trying, I'm seeking after God and, and all that. And you say, hey, man, it's, it's cool. Listen, I'm a Christian too, but I'm going. And it's all right. And so what happens? They say, well, what, what's going on there? But they, don't you hang out? Don't you miss hanging out with your friends? Don't you miss hanging out with these guys? And what's happened? And listen, you know what it is? It's leeks and onions all over again. You see, because when you, now that you actually see the leek for what it is, and you say, well, I mean, it's just an onion. It doesn't really seem all that appetizing. But it's when there's like this romantic notion that we put around and it's like, oh, remember that night we had leeks? Oh, yeah, that was, that was some crazy night. Oh, yeah. And then we sauteed those onions. What? You know, what was up with that? What was up with that? And so, you know, and you know what happens? I'm telling you, we suffer from something as people and it's called selective memory. That is that we remember parts of things that happened in our past, but not re we don't remember everything. And I'll be honest with you, to this day, I mean, I, used, I was in a couple of bands, uh, one band that had a record deal and we put out two albums, another that was, um, and that was the Christian band. Before that, I was in a band that wasn't Christian, and I mean, we were about ready to sign with a major label, and so we were meeting all these people, and I mean, it was like we're playing in front of lots and lots of people all the time, and I just have this memory 
Now, and sometimes when I think about being in bands and all that, or maybe I'm sitting in my office at home and I've got my guitar and I'm just playing, and I start kind of thinking and reminiscing, and I start thinking like, man, that was something. Man, that, those were good times back then. Oh, man, I love playing. I love performing and all this stuff. And I kind of get this thing. And I wonder what would have happened if we had signed that record deal with Roadrunner Records. And what if we had pursued that a little bit further? And I start kind of thinking about all this, right? And I'm kind of working through this in my mind. And you know what happens? I'm even suffering from selective memory. Because I have to purposely remind myself that I was absolutely miserable. I was absolutely miserable. I would play a show in front of thousands and then walk off the stage and sit in the corner and not understand why I was so miserable, why I was so unhappy when this was everything I had ever wanted. But see, I'll sit in my office sometimes, and if I'm not careful, I'll start thinking leeks and onions all over again. Oh, this just could be so great. Oh, remember this, remember that. It's leeks and onions. And if I can just know it for what it is, I mean, this doesn't look that attractive, does it? I mean, it's a leek. I mean, come on. I mean, this is ju- it's just an onion, right? But it's when we just have the selective memory and we're not really thinking straight. Because, you know, what happens is this. What Satan does is that he only reminds us of part of what happens, but not really the full story. You see, he reminds us of the party, but never the puking that happened afterwards. He reminds us of the laughs, but never really like the loneliness that took place. He reminds us of the club, but then never reminds us of the consequences that took place because of uh, our actions. And, and here's the thing that happens, and this is why it's so important that the people in our lives are, 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 are what are such an important component in the maturity that we have in our faith, is because the mixed multitude aren't atheists. They don't worship Satan or anything. The mixed multitude are people who like Jesus on Sunday. They just don't mind hanging out with the devil on Friday and Saturday. And so here's the thing. And so here's what the Proverbs would say. He would say, it says this in Proverbs 13, uh, verse 20. It says that he who walks with the wise is wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. That he who walks with the wise grows wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. So how do you grow in wisdom? You grow in wisdom by getting around wise people. That's what he says in Proverbs. He who walks with the wise gets wiser. You hang out with fools and, and destruction is what comes into our lives. And so what, what does that mean? What, how do I get wise? I hang around with wise people. Where do I hang around with wise people? You're hanging out with wise people by being here. You're hanging around with wise people when you get involved in a growth group. And, and you'll see this in your program that you got, and um, I'll highlight it for just a second. Listen, these groups, let me tell you something about these groups. I've never met someone who's been part of a growth group, and there's people that are just crazy about them. Uh, and like me, and here's the thing that, that, that they understand. I get into a growth group, I grow. I don't go and get into a growth group, my growth is slowed down tremendously. So here's what I'm encouraging you to do. Listen, there is a group happening every day of the week. And so, if you're, well, I just don't have time. Oh, you have time. You have time to spend 90 minutes um, to, get, to get into a group. Because here's what's going to happen. What's going to happen is, you're going to find yourself being propelled to the next level in, in your faith and in your walk. Why? Because you're doing the wise thing. Now, here's just the funny thing about maturity is that to become mature, you have to make mature decisions even when you're not yet mature. You say, what? Yeah. The way that you become mature is that you start making wise and mature decisions when you aren't yet mature. 
That's what leads you to maturity. So you say, we've got all these reasons and excuses as if, if we decide that we're not going to do it. Well, I've got this other stuff going on. Well, why don't you make, what would a mature, and if you ask the question, what would a mature person do? What would a person who's serious and mature about their faith, oh, they definitely get involved in a growth group because they want, they want to continue to be mature and grow in their maturity. Then make the decision that mature people make. And what you're going to find is, is that you're going to find yourself possessing maturity. And that's the, that's the important thing. Paul goes on in verse 10, and here's what he says. He says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, what happened to me at Iconium, at, at Antioch, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord has delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, what's the third thing that, that Paul references here? It's not just the decisions in my life that produce maturity. It's not just the people in my life that produce maturity. Number three is it's the experiences in my life that produce maturity. And what Paul does is that he brings up these three cities. He says, you remember what happened at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Now, what we're thinking is, I don't know what happened. What happened in those places? The, the, each of these cities that Paul was traveling in, they gave him, the, each of the, these cities had a test. And he, as he passed each of these tests, you know what he found? He found his maturity growing. What happened in Antioch? If you're taking notes uh, in, in your outline, Antioch was the test of rejection. It was the test of rejection. Here's the passage right underneath it in Acts 13. It says, the following week, almost the entire city turned out to hear them, that is, uh, Paul and Barnabas, to preach the word of the Lord. But when some of the Jews saw the crowds, they were jealous. So they slandered Paul and argued against them, against whatever he said. And then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared it was necessary that we preach the word of God to you Jews. But since you have rejected it, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we offer it to the Gentiles. Then the Jews stirred up the influential religious women and the leaders of the city, and they incited a mob against Paul and Barnabas and ran them out of town, so they shook the dust from their feet as a sign of rejection and went to the town of Iconium. Now, now here's the thing that's important. This is such a pivotal moment in, in history, and the reason that uh, most of us are here today is because of this moment. You see, the gospel was going out primarily after Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. The original disciples had spent most of their time seeking to reach out to Jews. Jews who knew the Old Testament scriptures and who understood that the Messiah was going to come. And yet here's what takes place. What takes place is, is that now... They're there, and the Jews that are there, they, they're finally saying, you know what, we don't want anything to do with this whole Jesus thing. Just come on. And so they oppose him. And then finally, here's what Paul says. Paul says, you know what, because you've rejected the gospel, now I'm going to go to Gentiles, to non-Jews, with the gospel. And when, they, and when he went to non-Jews with the gospel, to Gentiles, Christianity began to spread like wildfire. And the reason that most of us are here is because of this decision that Paul made as God led him to say, you know what, this whole issue of rejection is to lead you to go where it is that God wants you to go. And this is the thing that's so important. I mean, um, rejection is such a hard thing. 
But yet if we'll learn from rejection and we'll realize that this rejection is simply a test to teach me something, it'll take us to a different place uh, in, 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 our, in our lives. You know, um, last year, uh, I've, been, I've been finishing writing my, uh, my new book, and um, uh, I got rejected by three publishers last year. And it was like, um, like not just like, hey, we're not interested, but it was like, I be, they began the, like we kind of began the process, and there was this editorial board, and they liked it, and then this other board, and they liked it. Then there was like the final group, like the, are we going to do this and put money into the book and all that stuff? And then the, I, I get a phone call, and it's like, hey, you know, we really like you, we really like the book, but we're not going to do it. It's like, you know, you ask a girl out, and she says, you know, I really like you, but I'd rather just be friends. It's that conversation, uh, except with a company. And so, and, and I had this, and it's like, so like you start getting kind of built up, and then you get rejected, and then, you know, you cry a little or whatever. <laughs> and then uh, you, you kind of get built up again, and then you get rejected. And I'm telling you, like, if I had just taken the rejection and just said, you know what, forget it. I don't want to get rejected because it's just too much to take. You know, I would have missed out on what God was doing in my life. But every time someone called me and said, hey, you know what, we're going to pass, we're going to say no, I would say, hey, you know what, what was the reason that you said no? Well, you know what, I said, listen, I need you to be real honest. And, I, you know, I'm a big boy. You can tell me if you just think, you know, we just think you stink and you'd have no comprehension of the English language, whatever. Tell me whatever you want. I said, but I really want to learn. And so they would, and I'd have a pen. I'm telling you, one guy, I mean, I took two pages of notes on all the problems he had with my book. I'm like, all right. Yeah, don't ever call me again. Uh, so anyway, so I'm, I'm telling you, so I'm listening to him. I'm taking all these notes. And you know what I did from that, that rejection? I learned from it. My book began to morph and change a little bit as I began to grow from those experiences. And this past Thursday, I just signed the contract uh, with, the, with the publisher for my new book. And here's the thing. I never would have gotten there had I not experienced the three rejections before. You say, well, couldn't you just have sent it to the first, the, the one that signed you and, and not ever dealt with those? Well, maybe. But maybe it just would have been everything in reverse. Maybe what I needed was those three rejections to help me improve what it is that I had. And listen, the same thing is true with you. God will take rejection and use it in our lives for the purpose of maturing us. You know, I'm telling you, I, I, I keep reading about stories about guys who say, well, what happened? Well, I got fired, I got laid off, I got this restructuring happened. And then what did you do? Well, I decided to pursue my passion and I started a company. And now these guys are doing much better than they ever did. I mean, it's like, well, well, how did that happen? Well, there was a rejection that took place. There was a circumstance that took place. There's an experience that happened. And they decided now to do something that was maybe outside of the box for them, but they never would have even considered it. Has this experience, this Antioch type of experience, take place in their life? So that's one. How about Iconium, number two? Iconium is the place of persecution. That's the test of persecution. Here's the story in Acts chapter 14. It says, now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and they spoke that a great multitude, and they so spoke that a great multitude of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their, their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness uh, to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part sided with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of uh, Lyconia, to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. 
Now, here's what I mean. They go, they go from Antioch, then they go to the next city, which is Iconium, and you know what they hear about? A plot to assassinate them. Now, I don't know about you, but that's just not the welcome that most people are looking for when they get to a city. People are coming to know Jesus, and then they find out, hey, guess what? There's a group of people that want to assassinate you. And here's, here's the thing. If you're a Christian, and I don't mean like a Christian where you say like, oh, yeah, I believe in God. I mean like a real Christian. You know, like one, you're, like you're really following Jesus. You're really seeking to be who God wants you to be. You're seeking to have more of God in your life and, and, and really honor the Lord. Now, here's what happens. Listen, persecution is part of the program. Persecution is just part of, part of the deal. That's what verse 12 says, what we read in, in 2 Timothy. He says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You see that? That's, that's the key. He says, all who desire to live godly. And that there's this thing that happens when a person makes a decision to do the right thing, that there's immediately opposition. You see, when you're in the flow of doing the right thing, sometimes there's opposition, but it's a lot of times when we're just getting started and we say, well, I'm going to start doing the right thing, that that's when the opposition comes. Now, listen, it's not just experiencing opposition because you do stuff that's dumb. Now, listen to what, here's what I mean by that. Listen, let me read you this in First Peter chapter 4. He says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And if you suffer, it shouldn't be uh, as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So then, those who suffer according to God's will, you may want to underline that phrase, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Now, here's what I mean. It's not just experiencing persecution, because a lot of times people experience persecution simply for doing things that are dumb. And that they just, and, and then persecution is just the natural result of that. When I was in uh, when I was in college, there was this guy uh, and he was always saying that he was being persecuted for his faith. And so one one day I hung out with him and as I hung out with him, you know what I found? He wasn't being persecuted for his faith. He was just rude. And as he was rude and really insensitive to people, um, people would then kind of give him that in kind. And then he would say, well, you know, Bob, I'm just being persecuted for my faith. I'm like, no, you're being persecuted because you're an idiot. There's a big difference. And uh, then he said that I was persecuting him. See how that goes? Um, but that, that, that's, that's the big thing. And so this is what Jesus said. He said, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You see, there's the test of rejection. There's the test of persecution. But then there's the third one, and that's in Lystra. And that's the test of motives. Let me read you. It's a long passage, but let me read you the story. Here's what it says. It says, In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. And Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, Stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside of the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and, uh, he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Now, by the way, this is pretty good, right? 
They show up in town. The other one, they found an assassination plot. Then they show up to this town, and this is what they. And it's like there's this miracle that happens, and then they say, "These are not mere men. These are the gods." Well, you know what? The last town I was in, they wanted to kill me. You guys want to worship me? I think we can work something out, right? I mean, so. But here's what happens. They don't say that. This is what they said. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes, rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything that's in them. In the past, he let all nations go their way and he's not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with the words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews from where? Antioch and Iconium. These guys, they're like a bad penny you can't get rid of. Uh, uh, They came out and they won the crowd over. And then here's what happens. They stoned Paul, dragged him outside of the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Now, I've got to tell you, what fascinates me about this story is the fact that they went, in a matter of minutes, they went from saying, let's sacrifice, these guys, sacrifice to these guys, you know, because they're the gods. They went from that to stoning them. I mean, huge rocks and hitting them. So when it says that, like, Paul got stoned, it's with rocks, not the other kind. Um, so, he's, uh, anyway, the, other, the next service will get that joke. Um, now it teaches. Now why say why that? Well, it teaches us something. It teaches us that you can't live for other people's approval, and that's why this is the test. Lystra is the test of motives. It's the test of motives. The test where we have to ask ourselves: Am I really living for God, or am I living for someone else's approval? Because that is going to determine where I, what kind of maturity I reach in my faith. You see, Paul said these words: "He says, Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God?" Am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. You see, if you're going to be mature in your faith, here's what you've got to learn to do. You've got to learn to live for an audience of one. Live for an audience of one. That is that you're seeking to please God above all else. And that means that there's going to be moments where you're going to let people down. There's going to be moments where your family is counting on you to do something. And you say, you know what? I'm sorry. I can't do that. Yeah, but I'm really in, 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 in need and I need you to do this and I just need you to co-sign for me. And then when you take them to this passage in Proverbs that tells you that you shouldn't co-sign for people and, and you say, well, I'm sorry, I've got to obey God rather than, rather than this, this situation that you have. But don't you love me? Didn't you say you were a Christian and you kind of go into the, that whole thing and all that and it's like people aren't, they don't know anything, they want to know anything about the Bible until you don't do what you want them to do. You know, you, they don't, you don't do what you want them to do and then they start quoting whatever verse they, they know or whatever. And, and here, so what happens? Well, then you have the opportunity. Do I, who am I trying to please? Am I trying to please God or am I trying to please people? Listen, it takes maturity to live for God in the face of the crowd. But we're never going to reach maturity until we decide that our goal is not to please people, it's to please God. You see, and the question that it really comes down to, this whole message has really come down to is, do you want to be mature? And if you want to be mature, then here's what it takes. It takes taking a step of maturity. And it's what I said before. The way that people get mature is by taking steps towards maturity before they're mature. 
they, before they're mature, they start taking mature steps. They, start, they ask themselves the question, what would a mature person do in this situation? Well, what a mature person would do is they'd do the right thing. Well, then I'm going to do the right thing even if it doesn't feel like the right thing at the time. You see, that might mean something like a growth group. That might mean something like baptism. That might mean uh, something like beginning to serve. There's a lot of things. You'll see on the back of your connection card several next steps. And let me, let me encourage you in this. It might be going to a financial seminar that we're putting on. It might be. I mean, there's so many things. But here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you to say, what, do, what would a mature person do? And whatever a mature person would do, I am going to do it because what I desire is to be mature. People who are spiritually mature, here's what they do. They decide in advance to do the right thing. And listen, if you make that decision and you say, I'm going to decide in advance to do the right thing, you will not regret that you did it. Let's pray together. And God, we want to thank you for the fact that there is even the possibility of us maturing in the faith, that you want to take us from where we are to where you want us to be. And Lord, I pray that we would each take a step in your direction. God, help us to do what you want us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.